to have been in the Kansas district this week to enjoy with you the blessings of the Lord to hear what we've heard and felt what we have felt to be on the receiving end of the good Christian hospitality brotherhood and fellowship that we have experienced from all the brethren of the Kansas district and uh, I've enjoyed my personal fellowship with Brother Westberg, your superintendent, Brother Beckton, your fine secretary, and each man of the, of the board and the brethren, and uh, the evangelists that are all in this camp. And it's not always easy. Sometimes you are teamed in camps with uh, different men, and uh, the flow of the spirit and uh, just doesn't seem like you can get everything all into step the day services go in one cadence and the night another but it's been a privilege to work with brother Muncie this week and uh, enjoyed his ministry Bible teachers are an endangered species amen because we have so many that Preaching is more scintillating, it's more titillating, and uh, than just getting down in the Word of God, breaking the Word of God, verse by verse, understanding it in its contextual accuracy. But it is Bible teaching that puts meat and sinew and fiber in your walk with God. Amen. And there needs to be a complement of evangelism with good Bible teaching in every church for it to be a solid apostolic church. Amen. And we have enjoyed his ministry. I want to thank everyone for everything because a camp meeting is not just the speakers, but it's the people that cook and the people that police the grounds and the saints that come and worship with open hearts and those that pray before the service. The camp is made up of all of that. The architect and the mayor and the city fathers get their name on the cornerstone of the building. But there are thousands of unnamed workers that put their energies and their efforts into building the building. And so this camp is made successful not not in a large part but in a very small part by myself and brother Muncie but in a great great part of you whose name has not ever been mentioned in this camp but your devotion day by day by day and uh, coming worshiping the Lord and I was thinking as the camp the service was going on tonight my mind went back to the creative week of the Lord and to think all that Jesus Christ as the Word of God from the creation. God created the worlds, what He did in one week's work. And I pray that my week's work here has had spiritual creation in your life and has left an impregnable mark on your walk with God and your concepts of walk with God, your walk with God. And if I've done that, my coming has been valuable. And if it has just been the enjoyment, so often uh, we come to church 
and it's almost like the world going to a ball we just don't have the dressed up drunks and we don't serve champagne but too often going to church is a spiritual answer to going to the movie where people go to the movie and are enthralled by drama their emotions they become a part of the story every male becomes the hero every female and their emotion becomes the heroine of the drama and people live out their lives substituting a thing felt for a thing done and so often we come to the house of god and we are touched and emotionally moved by the worship and the preaching of the word but it's just like having gone to the movie we've been entertained we have let our emotions become involved and we were whoever was the champion of the message that night but it's all an emotional thing and we never translate what we heard into a lifestyle and into an action in james the admonition of the lord both was that there needed to be doing along with our hearing praise god mr salman could you give me just a little bit more I'm reading tonight from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew and also the tenth chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. My pace will be slower. The Holy Ghost dealt with me deeply as I sit on this platform today as these fine men were being ordained into the ministry the Holy Ghost began to deal with me about about this message and so I want to bring to you the word of the Lord that God dealt with me about today Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13 enter ye in at the straight gate for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many, everyone say many, there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few, everyone say few, and few there be that find it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or our compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measure, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as 
to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope which, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in any man's line of things made ready to our hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. It's not how good we look to ourselves, and it's not the rule of the measure with which we set by our own rule, but it is the rule which God hath distributed to us, which reacheth even unto you. For he is not commended who is commended of himself, but it is whom the Lord commendeth. I want everybody to relax. I'm not going to say anything dangerous. I can already feel it. I'm not going to undo four nights of what I've done. So just relax. The standard has always been and always will be to the fullness of the measure of the man Christ Jesus. And until we look like him and act like him and talk like him, and until our spirit and our attitude and our motives are like the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever else we boast of, we boast of a measure of ourselves among ourselves. But when we walk and talk and look and live in the fullness of it is God's design that we stand in the fullness of the stature of the man, Christ Jesus. For that purpose was the ministry given. Paul tells us that in Ephesians 4. I'm preaching to you tonight on the power and the peril of consecration. The power and the peril of consecration. We deal in things that sometimes we do not understand. And we, we handle things that are far more powerful and have far more responsibility than sometimes when what we imagine. When the Holy Ghost dealt with me and God gave me this message, it has caused me to walk so much more soberly and with such a greater intensity and desire that whatever I present that I am and to deal as a man of God with the things of God with a very careful and prayerful spirit you that seek to consecrate to God, and especially to the ministry that's here tonight, you that are leaders in what 
whatever form within the churches in which you serve under the honorable office of a bishop and you that desire to consecrate your lives to God I really think you ought to understand not only the power but the awesome peril to any man or woman that consecrates their lives totally to the Lord God you've touched me with anointing I feel it Lord I just pray that my spirit can complement this word that you have given to me let the word of God be received let it profit being mixed with faith Lord bring every alien spirit into captivity I pray tonight that you can quiet the children and that you can bring a peaceful spirit of rapt anointing and attention on this congregation so that God that we do hear the word of the Lord and that the Lord, word of the Lord impress us because God if we do not deal responsibly with the truth that we have if we do not deal responsibly with the knowledge that you've given us woe woe unto us I pray that you touch us all now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ amen you may be seated thank you for your patience because of my childhood it has brought a characteristic into my adulthood of being a quiet sober person I'm not given much to levity or frivolity a lot of times my wife tells me I'm not a whole lot of fun to be with and because of that I have learned to enjoy being alone many people cannot survive without a crowd but I have learned because life forced it on me as a child I learned how to feel comfortable with only myself to entertain myself so I have a place that I often go to be alone with the Lord I call it my wondering place it's where I go to wonder about things that disturb me as a pastor or of deep burdens and care that I know that people that I shepherd and love carry and because I feel a responsibility to minister to their needs I often go with the Lord to my wondering place and there the illumination of the Spirit has often come to give me that fit word for whatever need I happen to be addressing at the time sitting along the Chattahoochee River that flows through the city of Atlanta 
I often sat at my wandering place and am lost among the sounds of the river, the boiling rapids and the soft roar of the water as it flows between the banks. I've wondered as I've sat many a time underneath the arthritic oak that stands as a sentinel at the shores, the banks of the, that river. I wondered if a hundred years before, a squirrel or a chickmunk had hidden an acorn against winter's coming and forgotten where it had buried its treasure. And then the seasons came and the germination and there stood a tree because of the burial of an acorn by a for, for forgetful squirrel. One day as I was sitting there, I began to reflect back into my boyhood. I was born in Miami, Florida and was raised all of my childhood in Jacksonville, Florida. There were two large segments of water. They were swamps that played an ultimate role in my life. The Everglades in southern Florida, the Okefenokee Swamp, which inhabits southern Georgia and northern Florida. And as I sat there by the river, I thought about the swamps. And out of that, this message was born. There's only a slight difference between a river and a swamp. Both of them are bodies of water. Both of them, depending on the region that they're in, especially the Okefenokee and the Chattahoochee, spawn mostly the same types of aquatic life. You will find, by and large, the same kind of fish, except in the extreme northern part of the Chattahoochee because it's spring-fed from the northern mountains. You will find an abundance of brown and brook trout in the, in the river. But you will find much of the same kind of wildlife that inhabit around the region of the Chattahoochee as in the Okefenokee Swamp. They're both bodies of water. They're both aquatic and they're alike in a lot of ways. The only difference really is that a river is limited and confined, but a swamp is unfettered and it's free. But the difference makes for large consequences because swamps are difficult wildernesses for progress. There can be no agriculture near a swamp without expensive drainage and dredging and filling. Roads and highways can only be built with tremendous engineering skill and acumen. When the Tamiami Trail was built between Tampa and Miami, Florida in the early 1900s, it was considered to be a tremendous engineering feat because much of its mileage was built through the Everglades in the swamp. Water, when it's confined to banks and is disciplined to flow in a definite direction and path, becomes a servant of civilization. Where the swamp stands in the way of progress because it's free and unfettered, because it does not know the confining limitations of banks. While it supports wildlife, it stands in the way of progress 
and it's a difficult, difficult barrier to progress. But where you find a river, disciplined, ordered, defined, housed within banks, flowing in a definite direction, you will find a power and a servant of civilization. Men who have harnessed rivers for thousands of years, the Tennessee and the Colorado and the Columbia and the St. Lawrence, as it spills over Niagara's, are made to light our homes and they are made to turn the large machinery that manufacture many of our goods in factories. These rivers light hospitals. They provide the power that have become such a useful part of our lives. The Mississippi and the Potomac and the East River that flows through New York City, the St. John's that flow through the city of Jacksonville, the Sabine that divides Texas and Louisiana and the Hudson Rivers, have become the highways that transport cargo and provided travel in the early part of America. Almost every early settlement uh, in the building and the settling of America uh, took place along a river. Because there were no trails or paths, no highways, no wagon trails, for the settlers that have inhabited early America to be able to communicate and travel between forts and villages. And so the rivers became the highways. The rivers were the telephone lines. They were the only means of communication between these cities. And if you ever took the time to look through the Word of God to find out how much apart rivers were a part of the lives of the people of God. But there are some lives who are like swamps. They fret and chafe under restraint. They evade discipline, and therefore they go nowhere. They are the haunts of gators and moccasins and mosquitoes. They are filled with black, brackish waters. They are wild as Absalom and the mules that he rides. There is, there is in a swamp-like spirit, a spirit that will not know the confining limitations of any order or any government or any discipline. They are within those spirits. They become swamp-like. And in them you find all kind of spiritual maladies and uglinesses. What's wrong? Have I scared everybody to death? Either I'm so captivatingly interesting that I'm not getting an amen or you're sitting there with baiting breath. Wild, untamable, wanting no barriers, wanting no banks, wanting no limitations, wanting to love where they want to love, wanting to worship in any kind of boundary, beyond any boundary that they desire to worship. Evading discipline, evading order, evading government. And so, because of that, they are very shallow and they foment a very dangerous type of lifestyle. But there are others who are like rivers. They know that without discipline there can be no achievement. They submit to control as a river submits to its banks. Amen. And because of that, 
they flow in a definite direction along a definite pathway. And they can become the burden bearers of the culture and the society in which they live. They can generate tremendous, tremendous, awesome realms of power because they submit to control and the definite confinements of banks and of order. Love can either be swamp-like or love can be river-like. Love can have a broad expanse and a broad scope, but in its broadness it has a shallowness. Understand this, that in the scripture love must be within limits. God does not love capriciously and love without without rule and without certain order. There are things that God has chosen not to love. There are things that he has told his church that they are not to love. And when love in the charismatic concept, just love, just love, no bondage of rule, no tradition of law. Let's just love, let's just love. That type of religious experience is shallow. That type of religious experience bears no burdens. That type of religious experience generates no power. It just becomes the heart and the habitat of alligators and poisonous snakes, black, blackish waters. But where love is river-like, when love only loves the highest values, when love is disciplined within the banks of the 66 books, when love is demanded to flow in the confining order of God's government, it can go somewhere. It can carry some burdens. It can serve the needs of humanity. You see, love must have appended to it because love can only generate, Paul said to Timothy, out of a pure heart, out of a pure mind, and out of an unfeigned or unpretended or an unhypocritical faith. And where the heart is not pure, and the mind is not pure, and the faith is not genuine, you don't have love. You have something else, because love can only emanate out of that kind of spirit and out of that kind of heart. You know, when you really stop to think about it, it'd be a strange world that we would live in that had no limitations. We are able to exist because we live within the limitations of time and size. I'm going to ask whoever's pecking on that typewriter to please stop. It's bothering me. If it's not bothering anybody else, I would appreciate that if you would. Be, a, be an awesome world to live in a world where there were no limitations, where there were no definite parameters. 
because if there were no limitations, ants would grow to be the size of cows. And mosquitoes would achieve the awesome size of an eagle. And cockleburs would take on the grandeur of a pumpkin if there were no limitations. But because God placed limitations on them, things that are detrimental to us are held in check because God placed a definite limitation on them. Most, most embryos are equal in size at conception. I did a little research and I know that biologically that the embryo of a fox squirrel and of the white-tailed deer are identical in size at conception. But no squirrel, no matter how many acorns he eats, no matter how abundant the hickories or the pecans are in the forest that he nests, no squirrel will ever achieve the size of a white-tailed deer. The seedlings in the Pacific forest that we know as redwoods, as seedlings are the same size as magnolias and pines and dogwoods and birches and ashes. But no ash will live or ever reach 300 feet tall or achieve 30 feet in diameter or live to be 4,000 years old like a redwood. But God has placed a definite limitation on each of those varying species. Living things of every kind have built-in limitations. Limitations of size, physiological optimums that God in his sovereign wisdom decreed and set the boundaries of. So that no mouse, no matter how much cheese he gets, will ever achieve the size of an elephant. A brook trout never stops growing all of its life. Every day that a brook trout lives, he grows. The only thing that prevents a brook trout from achieving the size of a whale is that God has set the limitation of years so that at 15 years is an old. An eight-foot man is a freak. A 15-foot man has never been known in all of history that's been recorded. Medical science has achieved in the last 25 years of increasing the lifespan. One of the reasons that Social Security is in so much trouble is that when the Social Security laws were enacted, the lifespan of, of, of the average American was about age 65. 
but now in the last 25 years, the average lifespan because of the quality of life, medical technology and sanitation, human life now lives to be about 75. Men are living longer, and so there is a tremendous strain and drain on Social Security. But a tortoise lives 250 years, but not a man. Aren't you glad for these logical governments and disciplines and limitations? I would hate to face a fire ant. The size of a cow. I would hate to have to deal with the Louisiana mosquito. And in Louisiana, they fly in formation. They're already so big, they just ask, should we eat him here or take him home? I'm so glad they don't achieve the size of an eagle. One of life's important discoveries is discovering your limitations. The spiritual, the physical, the mental, and the emotional parameters under which God has ordered in detail the life of man. Sometimes it's more important for me to know what I cannot do than it is for me to know what I can. In public education, children are tested very early in their educational disciplines to find out their IQs or their intelligent quotients, to determine how skilled and with what kind of acumen and how readily and to what depth and detail they will be able to learn. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in those IQ tests. At MIT several years ago, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, they had a little experiments with rats. A biology class was divided up into three segments. One segment was given rats that had been given rat IQ tests. This is for honest to God real. I'm not making this up. And these rats had a genius IQ for a rat. And so uh, they were separated from the rats that tested out just in the average IQ level. And then there were the mentally retarded or learning disabled rats that were divided in the other third. And so the class was divided in thirds. And they were told that this part of the class was working with geniuses. And these rats would be able to learn almost anything that they had the patience and uh, the ingenuity to teach them. The other third were told that these rats 
could do just about average things that rats could do if uh, they would work with them. And the other third were told that these rats uh, were mentally deficient and that you probably wouldn't be able to teach them very much. So over a six-month project, they come back at the end of it, and sure enough, the rats that had the genius IQ, they could just do all kind of things, solve fantastically complex and, and confusing mazes, and could uh, do all kinds of things. And the rats that were average, they were just average rats, and that's about all they could do. And sure enough, those that had learning deficiencies just didn't learn much of anything. They were just as dumb as when they started six months before that. And the class was told that they had been the butt of a great practical joke because a rat is a rat is a rat. And the only thing that made the difference is the attitude in which they were addressed. Now what that has to do with this sermon, I don't know. <laughs> but it's sometimes more necessary for me to know what God does not intend for me to become involved in. For the areas that have the sign off limits than it is for me to know the privileges that I may have as a child of God. Amen. When you don't understand your limitations, I used to think that every saint ought to be just like every other saint, and that every preacher ought to be like every other preacher, until I saw the parable of the thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and hundredfold. In the light of a 30-watt light bulb and a 60-watt light bulb and a 100-watt light bulb. And there's some of those 30-watt light bulbs that I tried to get 100 watts of brilliance out of them. And so I cranked up the voltage and all I did was blow the bulb out. Because all you're going to get out of a 30-watter is a 30-watter. But the one thing about the 30-watt, the 60-watt, and the 100-watt, they were all 100 percenters. They were all 100 percenters. But there are limitations that are built within each of us. When we have limitations and act as if we don't, you soon can find yourself in spiritual bankruptcy. And if you can understand the logic that ants should not be the size of cows and that cockleburs should not be the size of pumpkins, that you ought to be able to see that there are spiritual limitations that God places on us that would be as dangerous for us as gnats that flew that had the size and the physiological largest of an eagle, that those things would be just as dangerous for us. The greater responsibilities that God gave a man, the greater limitations that he put on that man. 
I want to say that again. The greater responsibilities that God gave a person to fulfill in his kingdom, the greater limitations that God placed on that man. You see it in Samson. You see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me, let me reason with you a little bit since you are such logical, well-balanced people. When you sing music, there's no leeway. You can't sing a little sharp or a little flat. You have to stay right on key. Because if you elevate your voice a half step above or lower it a half step below where the musician is playing, you're discordant. You cause disharmony and you vandalize the music. When God chose Samson to be the deliverer of Israel, he placed him in a position of spiritual responsibility superior to any other judge that would ever rule in Israel. And with that superior position of responsibility, God gave him Nazarite vows. And when the angel of the Lord told the father the destiny of the lad, the first question that Samson's father asked the angel is what are his limitation, limitations? How shall I honor the child and what shall his end be? And so the angel of the Lord gave definite limitations for the life of Samson. And as long as Samson lived within those limitations, he could slay thousands with the jawbone of an ass. He could tear the gates off of Gaza. Now, you can believe what you want to be. I don't think Samson was an awesome physical specimen of manhood. Because had he been, the Philistines would have known where he got his power. Amen. He was probably a skinny, scrawny, shriveled up shrimp. But when the Spirit of the Lord moved on him, his power was not in his hair. His power was in his consecration. And as long as he lived within the limits of the consecration, he did mighty spiritual works for God. How is it that a preacher can be in adultery and preach on Sunday night and a sinner come to the altar and get the Holy Ghost with an adulterous preacher with his hand on her head?
How is it that an adulterous preacher can anoint with oil and lay his hand on the head of a person with cancer and God heal them? The same way that Samson could sleep with a whore in Gaza and tear the gates off of the city the next morning was because there was still, even though there was sin, there was an honor and a living on the inside of a consecration or of a limitation that God had placed on them. That went over like a concrete balloon. But when Samson stepped beyond the boundaries of God-construed and disciplined boundaries and forgot his limitations, the Bible said he went out at other times and shook himself. But he wished not that the Spirit had departed from him. When the church loses its holiness, it loses its power with God. It's not the name only. It's not the new birth doctrine only. Because there is something that God has magnified above his name and that's his word and unless we walk and talk and live and preach within the limits of the word we will lose our power The power of consecration. The power of living within discipline limits. As long as Israel lived within the limits of the law, their enemies feared them. Babylon never, Egypt never, the Philistines never took Israel on as long as they were living within the limits of God's law. Hallelujah. Israel got to thinking one time that it was in the ark, that the box was magic, and there was something of an aura on the box, that if they had the box with them, that they would have the power of God with them. But they took the box to the battlefield and the enemy slew them. And the enemy took the box away from them. There's a difference between the symbols of worship and worship. It's more than chicken and jiving music. It's more than running and shouting and dancing and physically demonstrating. 
There has got to be a spirit of consecration in the music, in the dance, in the shout, in the song. Hallelujah. But every time Israel walked outside the limitations of God's law, Balaam told Balak, as long as they walk with God, nobody can curse them. Nobody can curse them. But if you get them to step out from underneath God's law, he'll curse them. The devil cannot destroy the United Pentecostal Church. The world cannot destroy the United Pentecostal Church. The charismatics are not a threat to the United Pentecostal Church. It doesn't matter how much water's in the ocean. The water that's of relevance is how much is in the boat. It's how much sin is in the boat. It's how much worldliness is in the boat. It's how much of the charismatic spirit gets in the boat that determines the progress and the direction of the United Pentecostal Church. Because even the weakest, the most struggling, the most aged, the most tattered, the most torn saint in all the church is too big and too wonderful and too loved by God for Satan ever to be able to curse it. It's living within limitations. Hallelujah. The only way that the church can bring the barges and the super takers of the all of the Holy Ghost to a world that's in darkness is to stay inside the banks. The only way the church will have the power to spin the turbans that light the light of light in the darkness of the world as long as they flow within defined banks can we be burden bearers and power generators. But when the church becomes a swamp, and breaks down the dams and floats over its banks. It destroys, it devastates, it drowns, it doesn't bless.
when you break down the dam because your revivals got too big for limits hundreds of thousands and it creates billions of dollars worth of damage because of idiots that will not drive and operate a car within the limits and the boundaries of law. You don't take somebody off the street and put them in a nuclear power plant because there's such awesome power inside those generators that if it's not properly handled, if it's not properly controlled, if it is not properly superintended, If it escapes, it has the potential of setting off a chain reaction that could destroy the world. Thank you. I've been wondering where my volume was. What happened? Destroy the world. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When we are given the power of this truth, God doesn't need any nincompoops handling this power. God doesn't need men who are not dry behind the ears that don't know how to use the awesome power of the gospel. The church needs leadership that understands the power of leadership and how devastating that leadership can be if it's not spiritual, if it's not godly, if it is not in control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sunday school teacher, Sunday school superintendent, song leader, choir leader, outreach director. When your pastor puts you in a place of leadership, he puts you in a place of power. And there is awesome responsibility that goes with that. If that power gets out of control, you can destroy that church. Preacher, when the presbytery lays their hands on you and they pray for you and they ordain you into this gospel, they have committed power more awesome than nuclear power in your hands. It can be a blessing to save lives or it can become an awesome, devastating, destructive force in your hands.
brethren, when brethren place their confidence in you and place you in offices in the district to serve them and you do not understand that power, you can hold in your hands the ability to destroy and to devastate. Power has got to have limitations. And the higher the power, and the greater the power, God always put more defined, and more rigid, and more stringent limitations. Church, if we're going to be cargo carriers, if we're going to be power producers, we have to live within the limits. Hallelujah. There's power in consecration. There's power in leadership that understands the confining disciplines of the Word of God on that leadership. That's the power of it. That's the power of it. As long as the church lives within the confines of that scripture, the world can't stop us. The darkness can't prevent us. Hallelujah. Ahab have plundered the vineyard long enough. God is fixing to bring Elijah to the stage of the end time. And the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to call revival fires down out of heaven. They've had all day long, and they have not brought redemption and freedom from sin to this world. But in the evening time, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, the church, the church, the church is going to rebuild her altars and bring revival to this world. Let me, let me throw this in before I get to the dangers, the perils of consecration. The word precision has vague meaning. Precision conjures up a varying standard of excellence. A carpenter if he can miter a joint to a sixteenth or a thirty-second of an inch, he is an absolutely tremendous finished carpenter. It's a standard that a framing carpenter doesn't even try to emulate. But any cut that can be within a thirty-second of an inch is an absolute craftsman's work. But to a dental technician, a 32nd of an inch is sloppy. Because when he makes the coping for your teeth, he deals in thousandths of an inch. Just a thousandth too much. 
and the coping will not seat on the prep correctly and the porcelain will not bond to the silver palladium base in that crown just properly and the tooth will come loose or it will break down under the strain of mastication or the occlusion will cause it to break but a thousandth of an inch is sloppy to a machinist because he has a standard in the ten thousandths of an inch ten thousandths of an inch a runner in the Olympics is timed to his speed for a record to a hundredth of a second now that's precision to divide a second into a hundred parts and to calculate a runner's time to within one hundredth of a second is precise but to a computer it's sloppy because a computer operates in billionths of a second and a computer has to have a clock that can divide every second into an equal one billion parts to be able to function glass bearing of that finely jeweled glass and 9,999 parts were pure and one part was impure out of 10,000 segments of one ounce is the very lowest standard that's acceptable in a fine Belgian made watch but when you're considering silicon that goes into a computer chip that's too sloppy that's too polluted that's too imp impure because to silicon one part in one million is the lowest acceptable standard now you have to divide an ounce into a million parts and 999,000 and 999 parts of that ounce must be pure unadulterated silicon and only one part in one million can be impure but when you're dealing with dioxin a toxic that we have heard about one part in one trillion in an ounce one trillionth of an ounce of dioxin in one ounce of water is so toxic that it would kill you in less than 60 seconds precision in a factory if a camshaft or crankshaft is ground to one ten thousandth of an inch that's like one of you ladies with fine hair plucking it out and splitting it in ten equal parts is it splitting hairs preacher no it's precision in all fine achievement there's a standard 
The higher the stakes, the greater the precision. What the custom is is too variable. Social convention is too whimsical. If you don't believe that, look at the way the styles change in the world. Things that were culturally and customly unaccepted when I was a boy. Unacceptable are now old-fashioned ideas to this generation. When our scientists put the moon capsule on the moon, they were shooting at a moving object. They better thank God it didn't, wasn't me doing it. Because I can't take a shotgun, a 12-gauge, with seven-ounce shot, magnum, three-inch magnum, and hardly hit a pheasant coming up out of a maize field. With four shots in the barrel and pulling the trigger as fast as my little old pinky will pull it. I never figured out yet how those pheasants could dodge all that lead, but they do it. But the moon is orbiting around the earth. And the earth is spinning 17,000 miles an hour on its axis at the equator. And so they're shooting a rocket off of a moving object that's spinning 17,000 17, miles an hour. And trying to hit a body that's circling the earth at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. It's like taking a 22 and shooting the eye out of a squirrel two miles away and hitting him dead in the pupil. That's the kind of precision that it takes. To be off one one thousandth of a degree, the rocket will miss the moon by a thousand miles. You know what? I'm going further than the moon. And I've got to believe that it's going to take a little careful more accuracy. I'm going to have a little more pure silicon in my chips that operate my guidance system. that are going to get me in that city. A computer's rule, a carpenter's rule, 16 to 30 seconds of an inch. A machinist micrometer to a hundred thousandths of an inch. That's why Paul said, measuring ourselves among ourselves. We're not wise. Trying to establish our own rule and our own standard is stupidity. Because the precision is to the fullness of the measure of the man Christ Jesus. Garments and hearts and motives that are cleaner 
and more purer than silicon. Attitudes that are as uncontaminated as water must be is dioxin. Attitudes, spirits, motives. I don't know how big a millimeter of spot or a wrinkle either on my garments or on my heart is acceptable or unacceptable to the Lord. But I know the eye of the Lord is more powerful than any electron microscope. And the purpose in the, of the, in the earth of the church determines the precision by which we must conduct our actions in our worship in our leadership the power and the peril of consecration amen how long have I been preaching the closer you walk with God the easier, not the more difficult that it becomes to become disillusioned and bitter. Because there is a purpose for which God gives a man leadership. There is a purpose for which God gives the truth to any body of people. And if you don't understand the purpose if you don't understand the whys, it's very easy to become disillusioned and bitter. I have been giving home Bible study to a Jewish man for the past several weeks. And I have borrowed from him much Hebrew literature from various rabbinical schools. I read of an incident in the Talmud. It is a legend whether or not it actually occurred in the life of Elijah or not. I don't know. It's not in the King James Version, so I discount its authenticity. But in the lesson, Elijah the prophet was getting ready to leave a city and go on a prophet's journey. A servant asked that he might travel with the prophet. The prophet said, I cannot permit it because the ways of a prophet are so strange and you won't understand the ways of a prophet. He said, I'll spend all my time answering your questions because a prophet doesn't do things in a conventional way. So it really would be better that you didn't go. You would be a hindrance and a retardant to me. The servant said, if I promise not to ask questions, can I go? So Elijah the prophet said, on one consideration that you ask no questions. If you ever ask a question, then it means you can walk with me no more. And it was agreed. 
So the prophet began his journey and approached the city, a large city. There was a group of hundreds of workmen that were digging an aqueduct, bringing a spring from a distance away underneath the wall of the city. He explained who he was, introduced himself, and asked for food and lodging for the evening. The men shooed him away, told him they were too busy working in the defense of the city to fool around with a foolish old prophet. So Elijah, being the man of God he was, turned and walked without saying a word. He got a few hundred yards down the road from the city. He turned and he unclasped his mantle from around his shoulders. He swung it back at the city. The servant saw the aqueduct finished underneath the wall and the water flowing into the city. The servant was alarmed a minute and then said, No, I think I understand that to himself. He said, Elijah has returned evil for good. That's understandable. And so because the night was coming and the sun was setting, they saw a gaunt, old, emaciated cow standing out in a pasture. Elijah and his servant walked toward the cow. They got near it. They saw an old lean-to of a shack over against a tree. They went over and found an old shriveled widow woman and a small, skinny, emaciated son. Elijah explained his condition, asked for a place to stay for him and his servant. The widow explained her humble, her humble means, but readily invited the prophet to spend the evening. The next morning, the prophet and his servant got up to leave. They thanked the widow for her hospitality, crude, mean, though it was, and started on his journey. He got a few hundred yards down the road, and again he unloosed his mantle and turned and waved his mantle toward the house of the widow. And the old gaunt cow that was the only means of milk and sustenance for her and her boy fell dead in the pasture. Elijah turned to walk away. The servant stopped and said, okay. He said, this is as far as I go, because he said, I don't understand. He said, the men that did you an injustice, the men that laughed at you, the men that shooed you away, you did good to them. The woman who did good by you, you did evil to her by slaying the cow. He said, explain it to me. He said, the men were digging in a city. He said, they were just a few feet away from a large treasury of gold. And because of their rudeness, by my finishing the aqueduct, because of their lack of showing hospitality to me, they missed a treasure that would have made them wealthy. He said, the angel of the Lord visited me last night in the widow's hut and told me that God was going to take her only son. But said, I interceded, and I got God to take the cow and leave the widow's son. Let me say this in passing before I explain why I told you that. Your pastor will do things that you don't understand. He'll take actions and make decisions that you wonder if he's lost his mind. How in God's name can a good, sane, thinking man do what he's doing? You don't know what he knows. You don't see what he sees. The ways of a prophet are very, very strange. And when you walk with God, 
The ways of God are very, very, very strange. God doesn't conduct himself to us in the same manner that we devote ourselves to others. After an outer form, when a person makes a tremendous commitment and a daring consecration. I know when I get through preaching for the next few minutes, I know that most of you are going to vomit this out. And you're going to say, I will not accept that. I will not believe that. I will not buy that. And all I'm going to say is you have a right to be wrong because that's exactly what you're going to be. John the Baptist was a man that was called to a ministry to a very, very close proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stood very near to him in the purpose and the plan of God. John reached back to the Old Testament, reached forward to the New. He stood in the interim and he breathed fire and life and married the two of them together. He was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was going to herald the day of the coming of the Messiah. John spent 30 years in Bible school. 30 years in the wilderness preparing himself to preach the gospel of the kingdom. 30 years of nurture and tutoring in the law. At least 12 years of nothing but prayer and devotion to God. And at 30 years, he stepped on the platform of the New Testament, preached six months, and God took his license. John was permitted to do no miracle. Never. Because that was the ministry of Jesus Christ. John built a congregation of thousands. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the rulers of Israel came out to the Jordan to be baptized of John. He was received because he was the son of the priesthood. God have mercy. <laughs> he built a church of thousands. He developed a following of thousands. And in one day's time, he took the whole membership of his church and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. We would have wanted at least the role of Pastor Emeritus. We would want at least some honorary position. But not John. Jesus took his church and never said thank you. And straight from his decrease, Herod had him placed in prison because John just didn't know how to do anything else but point his bony finger in that king's face and tell him it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. 
so he got thrown in jail. Now somebody that would have built a church of thousands and turned it over to me, I think that I could have squeezed into my busy schedule at least some time to go visit John. At least I could let him know that I was in sympathy with him. But Jesus never went to see John and never explained his absence or why he didn't come. And John, just before his death, was worried had he turned over his church to the right one. And so he sent his disciples. Even John the Baptist had his doubts. And sent disciples to ask, Are you he that should come? Or should we look for another? And for the first few moments they were in the congregation, Jesus Christ even ignored that they were there. And then in passing, he said, You go tell John that the lame are walking and the blind are seeing, the dead are being raised, and the gospel's being preached to the poor. He didn't tell him yes. He told him what the prophet said about the Messiah. And if John knew what the prophet said, he would have to die in the safety of knowing that he's fulfilling what the prophet said he would fulfill. But without bitterness, without hurt feelings, without feeling that the church had not been fair to him, John went to his death. You would have thought, Brother Muncy, he could have at least been the first disciple that Jesus would have called. Surely he could have let him go into the upper room. Surely he could have at least let him have the role of Andrew. Certainly. Because the Bible said, born of women, never has there been any greater than John. Never. But he that is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Unless you understand that the only reason God calls a man to preach, that the only reason that God gives a person an ability to lead, that the only reason that God gave you truth was not to pamper, not to pet, and not to promote you, but it's that you might evermore decrease, that he might increase. That is the only reason. God is not interested in promoting David Keith Fuller. God could care less about David Keith Fuller except in the realm of how much I can decrease and how much glory and honor comes out of my life for him and not for me. And unless I understand that and let God live a sermon through me, 
not only preach one through me only understanding that will keep me from being bitter and disillusioned and feel used and unappreciated hey I've been an evangelist when I went to Atlanta I lived 19 months in a Sunday school room to build that church don't think that it didn't hurt me as a man to know that my lovely wife and my two precious daughters were sleeping in Sunday school rooms when I had people who called themselves saints living in ninety and hundred thousand dollar homes that would not give one red dime to the kingdom of God don't think that didn't do something inside of me I know what it is to be late for a car payment I know what it is to sit down day after day after day and pretend that you're not hungry so the kids will go ahead and eat what little bit there is so that they won't know that you're not eating so they can have something to eat I know what that is but I'll tell you something that's never happened to me a whirlwind has never come out of the east and destroyed all of my property in one day the Sabaeans have never come and driven off all my possessions in one day all of my children have not been killed in the expanse of 24 hours I have not within that same 24 hours lost my health Now, did that happen to a reprobate and a devil? The Bible said Job was a perfect man, that he feared God, that he eschewed evil. When I get one like that, I do my best to take care of them. I'd like to have all the money tonight that I have slipped out of my pocket and slipped into a saint's hand to pay rent or buy groceries or gasoline or medicine over the last seven years. You dumb ninny, don't you ever think that your pastor's putting all that money in his pocket? Because he doesn't get up and parade how much of it he gives. And after all that happened to, me, to Job, I've had some men lose confidence in me, Brother Muncy, but I've never had my three best friends come down and sit in front of me and just glare at me for seven days without saying a word. I've never had my three best friends come sit down and after seven days of looking at me and not saying one word, call me a sinner a reprobate and a hypocrite and tell me I deserved everything that was happened to me because I must have done something wrong
God has to trust who he gives tragedy to. God knew the only man that it was safe enough to prove the devil was a liar was the man that was the most consecrated man to him and his kingdom. There are preachers that would love to preach camp meetings, pastor large churches, and be honored by this fellowship. But any man that's got any sense that's doing any of those things walks scared to death. I may be God's next Job. Leonard Westberg may be God's next Job. Because you see, sometimes we don't know what went on in conversation between God and the devil. And so God doesn't protect and pamper and save his favorites. It's those that he puts in some of the most devastating, some of the most challenging, some of the most awesome places. Are you really sure you want to be used of God? Are you really sure that you want to be close to Him as you can get? You might be asking to be a John the Baptist. You might be fasting your way into being a Job. Moses, I'm getting another era. Moses, the meekest man on earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power to crush, but the self-control to love. He stood between God and the people. He went up to the mountain. He got the law. He went back up on the mountain another 40-day period. And he got the Deuteronomy, the Levitical law. He walked with God. His life was totally devoted to the leadership of God's people. In fact, he so much loved God's people until one day he stood between the Lord and the people and said, God, if you're going to block them out, you're going to have to walk right over me. Just block me out with them. Preacher, you'll never have revival until you stand between your city and the judgment of God. Until you can say with Paul, I can wish myself a curse for my kinsman Israel's sake. Until you're willing to suffer damnation with the people that you're sent to be a savior of. You're not a preacher, you're a joke. Block me out, God. Block me out. 
If you're not going to save them, I don't want to be saved. That's what he said. And so the day came. what he said and so the day came who benefited from Moses' walk with God who enjoyed the splendor of all that power that Moses had with Rod and with God Moses didn't enjoy it Moses didn't benefit from it. The people did. It was the people that ate the manna. It was the people that ate the quail. It was the people that drank the water out of the rock. God gave all that power to Moses that he might deliver his people. God's not interested in building superstars. God is not interested in building fantastic supernatural ministries to promote a man. God loves his people. And whatever he gives a leader, he only gives to the benefit of the people. Not the man. Don't you think that a man that stood between God and the people, a man that laid his soul on the line, a man that laid his heart on the line, a man that cared that much about God's work, a man that was so integrally involved in God's work, don't you think that God could be a little tolerant and overlook at least one problem? The day came that the Lord spoke to Moses and told him to smite the rock or to speak to the rock. And Moses in his anger, not at God, he was mad at the people. Preacher, preacher, you better be careful when you get mad at God's people. He got mad at the people. And in his anger at the people, he smote the rock. Israel bellyached and murmured and complained and fussed all the way through the wilderness. They didn't die in the wilderness because of their murmuring and complaining and fussing and bellyaching. No, they died in the wilderness because they lacked faith for God to give them Jericho. That's why they lost and died in the wilderness. Not for their belly aching. I mean they complained and they belly ached and they fussed and probably cussed. And one time Moses got mad. One time. And smote the rock. And God said, Moses, because you failed to sanctify yourself before the people, you cannot go in the promised land. Preacher, 
You can't get away with what saints get away with. You can't manifest spirits that saints can manifest and be saved. You can't harbor attitudes and motives that saints can have. You know what it means to fail to sanctify yourself before the people? Read the Hebrew. It literally means that Moses failed to respond to that situation in the same way God would have responded to that situation. And because of that, it cost him the promised land. Saints aren't punching bags. Saints aren't a place to vent your frustrations and your anger. Saints aren't a place to let off your steam because you've got something in your heart against a brother. The pulpit's not big enough for that. And it's going to cost you your ministry if you don't react in every situation just like God would have reacted. Are you really sure you want to be a preacher? Are you really sure that you would give anything if God would just call you to preach? I'm going to tell you something. The easiest place to go to hell is behind this desk. The easiest place to lose your soul. The easiest place to get bitter. The easiest place to learn to hate. The easiest place to become cynical is from the pulpit. I can never forget that if I have a ministry that's a blessing, God didn't give that to me for me. He gave it to me for the church. For the church. You want me to tell you about Abraham? Abraham was the only man who heard from God. He was the only man in all the world out of which from the fruit of his loins could he build a nation from which Messiah would come to be the Savior of the world. The only one. Yeah, he tried to pawn off Sarah as his half-sister, as his sister, and she was his half-sister. Yeah, Abraham did have some warts and he did have some, he did have some moles. But I'm going to tell you something. Romans said that he staggered not at the promises of God. There are some promises God has given me that staggered me. That I reeled like a drunk man. But the Bible said Abraham staggered not at the promises of God. He dragged his tent all over Canaan. And everywhere he pinched his tent, you'd find an altar built to his God. He saved Sodom and would, some, would not so much as take a shoe latch from the king of Sodom. Sodom. 
because he said, I want the world to know that what blessings I have come from God. Anything that you have to get dishonestly or using the business sense of the world is not worth having. He faithfully followed God. Sarah passed beyond years. And finally the promise of God was fulfilled in Isaac. Surely a saint that had been faithful for a hundred years. Surely a saint that had always paid tithe of all that he had. A saint in which there was such purity and such godliness that he could be the father of a nation. Surely in his old age you would let him enjoy the last years of his life. He was called the friend of God. Now when I think about a friend, Brother Muncy, I think of the most valuable possession that I could have outside of God himself is to have a friend. A friend loveth at all times. A friend stands in companionship in every situation. A friend's always there. And this was the friend of God. And God told his friend, I want you to take your little boy, your son, thine only son, Isaac. In God's eyes, the only son that Abraham had was Isaac. Esau wasn't even considered thine only son, Isaac. And take him up to the mountain that I will show thee and offer him from a sacrifice for a sacrifice. That's God's friend. That's the way God treats his friends. That's the sacrifices that God asks of his friends. You know what you're going to get for all your devotion and all your gifts and all your sacrifice and all your long life of living for God? You know what you're going to get out of it? You're just going to be asked to sacrifice again more deeply of more value and of more worth if you don't understand that you're going to get disillusioned and bitter if you don't understand the reason for consecration that you belong to God and he can do anything that he wants to do with you you, if you're going to war with God, you have to accept His ways without understanding His motives. And that He owes you nothing but what He promised you. And that's eternal life. That's all He owes you. He doesn't owe you blessings. He doesn't owe you wealth. He doesn't owe you privilege. He doesn't owe you to be peppered. All he owes you is eternal life. But if you are with God, he's going to keep asking. He's going to keep asking. He's going to keep asking for more and more and more. And the longer you are with him, the more he expects out of you. That's why a preacher that thinks that because he is used of God, he doesn't need to pray as much anymore. 
that he can do things that lesser spiritual minds and hearts can do. He can watch his television in his motel room. And he can slip around and follow the world and it's not going to hurt him. Oh no. The closer you get to God, the tighter the limitations and the more confining the restraints. A man that walks with God, Paul said, I am bound. Paul found the confining limitations of his apostleship. He could not take giant steps, but he shuffled because he was so wrapped and so enveloped in the limitations of God. And God let a tormenting devil all stone in the flesh was not blindness. It was not arthritis. The Bible tells us what it is if we're sane enough to read it. It said it is a messenger of Satan to buffet him. There was some devil that constantly fought Paul. I don't know whether it was the demon of lust because he was celibate for the cause of the gospel. I don't know what it was, but there was something that constantly poked and prodded and pushed at Paul and gave him no peace lest he be filled with pride and become puffed up because of much revelation God the more dangerous it becomes. Because God's purposes and God's precision becomes ever more honed. David, David, I wished that I could just rebuke you for your sin in private. David, I wished that we could take care of this back here in the back room. But David, I've gave you beautiful songs. David, I've fellowshiped with you on the hillsides in an intimate way. David, I took you so close to me that your heart became like my heart. And David, you're going to see in the history of my work with others, you're going to see me work with it in secret, out of the spotlight. Don't get bitter, David but I can't have a water gate. I can't have a spiritual water gate. David, all of Israel is gonna know of your adultery. David, all of Israel is gonna know what you did to Uriah. David, I can't do this in secret. You use the position of superiority you use a position of privilege to kill a man and to take advantage of a man. David, I can't hide that. I've got to expose it. I put the crown on your head. I put the scepter in your hand. I can't let you get away with that, David. You've got to pay for that because that's my crown you wear. That's my scepter you hold. 
preacher, that ministry doesn't belong to you. You love saints that fell into adultery. You love them back to spiritual health, and nobody will ever know it. But you hear me tonight. There will never be a preacher, never, that commits adultery in secret and hides it. Never, never, never. If you're sitting here tonight and you did it, and it happened 10 years ago, and you are preaching the gospel, and you think it's hidden, I want you to know something. The time clock is just marching to the day. Because you're wearing God's crown. You're holding God's scepter. And when you walk in that privileged place of ministry, God can't let you do that. I am, not, I am not worthy to say what I'm fixing to say. I do not have the right to say what I'm fixing to say. And so I'm asking you brethren to receive me tonight as one who has no privilege to say what I'm saying. But you men that are elected to this district board, you be careful what you do about another man's ministry. You be careful as a presbyter how you handle the election in a church. You be careful the decisions that you make about a man's ministry. Because in a position of power and privilege, remember, it's God's crown. It's God's scepter. It's God's church. It's God's people, and you have to answer to Him for everything you do. And though the whole world may not know it, if with a sordid motive you destroy a preacher, a preacher, if you destroy a saint, don't ever think that you'll get away with it. Because the closer you walk with God, the more dangerous it becomes. I could go on and on and on and on and on tonight. But I could preach you beyond the point that you feel what the Holy Ghost wants you to hear tonight. I want the musicians to come. I'm going to close with this. God never began to use me there are men here tonight that I preached for 10 and 12 years ago God never used me like he has begun to use me until I submitted myself to the government and to the authority of the United Pentecostal Church. I come to realize that if there's a Saul on the throne, that's God's problem, it's not mine. I've just got to be the sweet singer in Israel. The three men, the three men that he took into the bedchamber of Jairus' daughter with him, 
the three men that he took to the Mount of Transfiguration with him. The men that he took a little further in the Garden of Gethsemane than he did the other nine. Peter, James, and John. Of those three men that were in the inner circle of the inner circle, those who saw him raise the dead damsel, those who saw Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration when he burst with brilliance brighter than the new day sun and he was transfigured before their sight. They that heard with much more clarity the deep guttural groans and agony of his passion. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was boiled like a chicken in a hot pot of oil. And with a disfigured face and gnarled, twisted, distorted limbs, because of the Roman law that prevented double jeopardy, he was banned to the Isle of Patmos. And with a twisted, gnarled, burnt hand, he picked up the quill. And in pain, he wrote every word of the revelation. That's the inner circle. That's the inner circle. That's the inner circle. That's the inner circle. If you could look into the private lives of Brother Urshan tonight, you would see a man that's undergoing tremendous, tremendous pain. There's not a preacher here tonight that right now knows all the circumstances would dare trade places with Nathaniel A. Urshan. I wouldn't want my daughter as Brother Urshan's daughter is tonight to have a body filled with cancer with the diagnosis that it will be a speedy and quick death if God doesn't intervene. I wouldn't want to have to carry some of the other things that he's carrying tonight. You think that it's all general conferences and camp meetings. You think that it's all spotlights and reverence of brethren. You don't walk the dark, lonely hours with him. Brother Beckton, Brother Kilgore, Brother Williams, Brother Yance, Brother Rex Johnson. I can take you into the past of every one of those men and I can show you a tragedy that was almost beyond human endurance there. It's what it's like to live inside the inner circle. It's what it's like to live consecrated to God.
the power and the peril of consecration. If you think I'm going to close this camp meeting tonight because you're in a hurry to get home, you're foolish. If you never get home, it won't matter nearly as much as it'll matter whether or not you pray tonight. I can tell in the Holy Ghost that I have stunned some of you. I have taken some of your breath. Believe me, this message scares me to death. If God gave it to me, that means I ought to understand it better than anybody else. And that makes me more responsible than anybody else. But I know that there are things that have transpired, transpired in the course of human events, in the lives of people that I preach to tonight, all across this congregation. This message has touched some place in your life. And every one of us tonight stand in a perilous place if we don't do differently with what we've got and with, with our calling. You are sitting in the most purpose.